baseball sing like you really believe those words. Amen? I'm grateful to be here. For those of you that may not know, as many of you are well, I am not usually the guy who gets up here and preaches to you, but I am thankful for these past few weeks to open God's Word with you, and I am excited to finish out John chapter 16 today. I trust these passages have been a blessing to you as you, we've kind of breezed through these, kind of getting a big picture. And I hope what that will do will spark your interest in even some of these details that maybe you'll grab a family member or a friend or somebody you don't know, and you'll say, I'd like to think more about what it means to abide in Jesus, specifically in my life. I'd like to think more about what it means to endure the world's opposition to Jesus. Can you help me do this? And then as we see today, Christianity is not merely a religion, but it has the joy as its foundation. So I hope that this has been encouragement to you. You all have been a blessing to me, and I am excited to finish out John chapter 16 with you all today. Are, are you a happy person? No, most of us are not happy all the time, but would that characterize you? Would people think of you as a happy person? Not merely do you feel good or even just wear a kind of a fake smile on your face, but is there, is there really joy in your heart? I used to sing a song as a kid that I've got joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. My favorite line, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a tack. <laughs> but are you happy? Do you have joy? That's what I want to talk about today. A man named Cyprian was, was a pastor or known as a bishop in, in the third century. And upon his execution for Christianity, he became the first bishop or pastor martyr of Africa. And listen to these words that he wrote to his friends not long before his death. He first described how beautiful the world is and God's creation, but then he said, it is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and good people who have learned the greatest secret of life. They have found a joy and wisdom which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians, and I am one of them. Christian history is filled with examples like this. Even this summer, the teens have been going through some missionaries throughout history and thinking how their, their life and their story and their devotion to God influences ours. And we talked about guys like William Carey and John Patton, both of whom, when they went to the mission field, lost their wives and children. Yet they still remained joyful during such a loss. Not that it wasn't difficult, but they still had joy. And I think many of us are, are prone to read examples like that. Maybe we feel encouraged, but at the same time, we think, I'm not like them. That type of joy is reserved for an elite group of Christians. But it's not something I can have. Well, 
what this passage shows us today in John, John chapter 16 is that you may not face the extreme situations that they faced. You may indeed face the same situations they faced. But our passage today reminds us that this type of joy belongs to all who follow Jesus. It belongs to all Christians. So as we go through John chapter 16 today, Christian, I pray that you would once again be reminded of God's love for you in sending Jesus and his cross and resurrection, which will give you a joy that cannot be lost. And if you're not a Christian, I am grateful that you're here today, and I pray that you would stop looking for joy in the wrong places, joy that is temporary, as we will see today, and come to Jesus, in whom you will have life and be given a joy that cannot be taken away. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, you can find this on your pew Bible in page 902 and 903, if you are following there. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me, no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full." I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say you, to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know you know all things and do not, need to do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me, You may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Father, we are grateful for your word. May we be reminded that if if you had never spoken, we would not exist. And as your people today, we need your word to live. So would you speak to us today, Father, through your word, through your spirit? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus 
turn, transform our sorrow into joy, is what this passage tells us. So that we can live in peace even in a troubled world. First, we see a bunch of confusion going on in this passage, don't we? Kind of like a riddle going on here. Even I caught myself reading and rereading this passage, and you, you, you can't get things said straight because he's like, a little while this and a little while now. In just a few hours, Jesus would be arrested, put on trial, and condemned to die on the cross. The disciples didn't know what was about to happen, nor did they expect that after three days he would be resurrected, that they would see him again. But this is what Jesus was describing when he said, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me there in verse 16. So the disciples are confused. That's the first thing we're looking at today. The disciples are confused. From, from our perspective, all is clear, right? We know how the story ends. We know what Jesus is talking about. But for them, it didn't make much sense, at least not yet. If this is the Messiah, the promised king, the one that we've been waiting for, why is he going away? And then why would he come back? A little while. People were expecting a Messiah. They, they wanted the Messiah to come, but they weren't expecting a Messiah like this. The promised king was going to come and triumphantly defeat the enemies of Israel. He was going to establish the kingdom of God, not be condemned by his own people and put to death by Gentiles. In the minds of the disciples, maybe all was falling apart. This is not how it was supposed to be. This is not the plan they had envisioned. They are confused. And even after Jesus addresses their situation, you see on down there in verse 29, now you're not using figurative speech, Jesus. Now we know. The reply of Jesus there in verse 31 indicates that they most likely still don't quite get it. Jesus says in verse 31, do you now believe? I wonder, where have you been for the past three years? Do you, do you now believe? Do you now get it? The disciples are, are confused. And do you see the word play there in verses 18 and 19? The disciples do not know, but verse 19, Jesus knew. In fact, all was not falling apart. This is exactly how it was supposed to be. This is the plan the veil would soon be lifted. The death and resurrection of Jesus would soon clear up the confusion. And John emphasizes that the cross and resurrection is the key to understanding who Jesus is. Once you see Jesus through the lens of the resurrection, it becomes clear. The veil is lifted. For example, back in chapter 2, and keep in mind that the apostle John is writing this after Jesus rose from the dead. Back in chapter 2, Jesus was standing by the temple, and there were some Jews standing there. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can build it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And John says, when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures when he was raised from the dead. Or back in chapter 12, if you recall, Palm Sunday, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and people are saying, Hosanna, 
John comments in chapter 12, he says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him. And then here we see, even in our chapter 16 today, down in verse 25, Jesus said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And this is what Jesus did after his resurrection. You can read about it in Luke chapter 24. Jesus explained how the entire prophecies of the Old Testament were pointing toward him. I would have loved to sat in on that conversation. It's not as if Jesus is speaking cryptically, but it's veiled. It's something that's coming, but they still can't see it. And you can imagine, if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, that they understand what Jesus is talking about, yet it's not all clear. But what's about to happen in a little while will clear up the confusion. And this is what Jesus goes on to explain. What is he talking about when he says, a little while I will go away from you, and a little while I will come back to you? Well, the immediate context is, is pointing us toward the cross, right? In just a few hours, he will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be arrested. And in a little while, he will die on a cross. He will be taken away from them. But we know the end of the story Not uh, long after that, in a little while after that, Jesus will come back. But he goes on to explain this. There in verse 20, he starts to tell them the truth. He takes their confusion and he leads them to the truth. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. You will be filled with sorrow. It's going to hurt And the word that's used here for weeping is used four other times in the Gospel of John. And it's always in connection with death. Think of Mary and even Jesus at the death of Lazarus. There was great weeping. Clearly the cross is in mind to the disciples of Jesus. Now there's nothing that brings more sorrow or more pain than death. And the disciples were about to experience the death of their great friend, the death of their great teacher, the death of their Lord, the one in whom they devoted the past three years of their lives to. But soon he would be dead. The one they hoped to be the Messiah, the promised King of Israel, soon would be gone. And along with it, all of their hopes in him. They will even scatter in fear in verse 32. Now, what could possibly make this situation even harder to bear? What could make the pain sting even more? How about somebody rejoicing at this great sorrow? How about somebody celebrating this great anguish? And Jesus said, this is exactly what's going to happen. Look there in verse 20. The world will rejoice. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. They will celebrate the death of Jesus. 
Remember last week we talked about how the world is not so much talking about the material aspect, but the moral aspect, those people who are in rebellion against God. That's what this world is. They will celebrate when Jesus is put to death. How could they do this, you might ask? Most people believe that hatred and killing are generally bad things, right? Most people think that. But when you hate or eliminate somebody whom you have defined as evil, it's a whole different ballgame. The truth about bad guys, if we're thinking this way, is they don't often see themselves as bad guys. You may watch a cartoon and see the bad guy with his mustache and twisting it and evil laugh, but that's typically not how the bad guys are in real life. They think they are the good guys. And in 2008, there was an article published called did Hitler think he was doing good? Now, the article affirmed that what he did was, in fact, evil. But the question is, did Hitler think he was doing good? And this article gives some quotes. It says, in 1936, Hitler stood up and said, I believe today that I am acting in the sense of Satan. No. He stood up and said, I believe today I am acting in the sense of almighty God by warding off the Jews and socialists. I am fighting for the Lord's work. In a book published in 1935 called Hitler Warned Us, sorry, it it contained photos of Hitler from 1935, and this book was filled with pictures of Hitler smiling, seeming to have a good time, seeming to enjoy life. Most pictures you look up online have kind of this sober-looking, snarly-looking man. But the conclusion of this article was that in his mind, Hitler believed he was doing good, at least for himself and the people of Germany. And the article concludes by saying, one person's goodness may be another person's suffering and death. Because the Nazis redefined goodness, they ended up celebrating evil. And even though Hitler claimed to be acting on behalf of God, he was, in fact, acting on behalf of Satan. This is why the world celebrated the death of Jesus. They thought they were on God's side. They thought they were getting rid of a blasphemer. They thought they would go down on the right side of history. Brothers and sisters, sin is deceitful. Sin will blind you so that it will take what is good and turn it into evil, and what is evil and turn it into good. It will make poison look like medicine, and medicine like poison. The disciples would be filled with great sorrow, while the world rejoices. A little while, and you will see me no longer. But, again, in a little while, you will see me. Do you recall the the conclusion of that article I just mentioned? One person's goodness may be another person's suffering and death. The beauty of our passage today is that Jesus turns that up on its head and says, for one person's suffering and death will be another person's goodness, another person's joy. So under this truth, we saw the sorrow that's going to accompany the disciples and the rejoicing of the world, but that's only temporary. For now, Jesus turns this sorrow into joy, and he gives us the illustration that many of you uh, are very experienced in. Verse 21, 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Some of you are thinking, amen. Why? Because her hour has come. Her appointed time has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Why? For joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus says, this is what you can expect. This is what it's going to be like, disciples. Verse 22, the sorrow is here. Look what he says. Now you are sorrowful. In verse 22, the hour has come. And when John talks about the hour is coming, it's the appointed time for Jesus to die, to be resurrected, to be ascended to the Father. Sometimes he packages up that by saying glorified. Jesus would say that in chapter 17, the very next chapter, say, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. It's the moment we've been waiting for, but it brings sorrow. But Jesus says, I will see you again. That is, I will rise from the dead. I will come to you. Now, do you see this moment of sorrow and despair? Do you see the care that Jesus has for his people? He is about to die, yet he is reassuring them. He is about to experience great pain, but Jesus is comforting them. Verse 20, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Your hearts will rejoice, verse 22, and no one will take your joy from you. Notice what happened. If you were to read chapter 20, Mary is near the tomb of Jesus. There's a garden there. And John says she is weeping. And this man, whom she assumes to be the gardener, says, woman, why are you weeping? And once Jesus reveals himself, what is her response? I have seen the Lord. Just after that, he would appear to the disciples. Jesus appears to the disciples, and what does he say? He says, peace to you. And the Bible says, they rejoiced. It happened. In a little while, they were sorrowful because of the death of Jesus. But then in a little while longer, they were rejoicing because Jesus came back. Isaiah 66 describes Jerusalem in labor. But when she gives birth, there is great rejoicing. There is peace to the nations. Isaiah 66, 14 says, you shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Maybe read this today, this afternoon, or grab somebody and go out for coffee this weekend. Read Isaiah 66 and think about how this points to Jesus and how Jesus has fulfilled this. Notice what the resurrection does. It transforms sorrow into joy. And this joy is not a temporary bubbly feeling that is here for a little bit and gone. It's not brought about by new circumstances. That's the world's joy, as we will see. No, joy in Jesus is a joy that Jesus says in verse 22, can't be taken away. It's a joy that can't be lost. This means that it's yours now. This is Christian joy. Some have tried to interpret this passage as the sorrow is right now and the joy will come at the second coming of Jesus. While that is certainly true, we still experience sorrow, we still experience pain, 
That doesn't have to characterize us, though, because Jesus talked about in a little while he'd go to the cross. In a little while he'd be resurrected. And what happens after the resurrection? You can have joy that cannot be taken away by anybody. Joy is transformed from sorrow. This means, Christian, for those of you who are following Jesus, for those of you who have put your trust in Jesus, this means that joy is not ultimately found in the job that you do or do not have. Your joy is not ultimately found in your family. Your joy is not ultimately found in your relationships. Your joy is not ultimately found in your health. Your joy is not ultimately found in your accomplishments or lack thereof. These are all good things and gifts from God, but your joy as a Christian is not based on circumstances. Your joy is the opposite of the world's joy. Notice what they did. They rejoiced at the cross. But three days later, they weren't rejoicing. It was the Christians who were rejoicing. Jesus got up from the dead. I can't think of a better example of this to put this transformation of sorrow into joy than the, the lion and the witch and the wardrobe, right? The great lion, Aslan, is, is this symbolic figure of Jesus. He's the lion. And the two girls, Susan and Lucy, they watched the evil witch kill the lion. They saw it with their very eyes. They saw them kill Aslan as Mary Magdalene saw Jesus crucified. They cried over his body all night. They were filled with loneliness, with sorrow. All hope was gone. Death is final. We will not be rescued now. There is no hope. But you remember that part in the story, the sky got lighter. The birds started to sing. They walked around the grass and came back to Aslan's body, and it wasn't there. What have they done to him? They asked. The sun rises behind them, and they hear a voice. It's Aslan. They laugh. They dance. They jump for joy. He is alive. This means that when difficult circumstances come, we can still have joy. This is not reserved for an elite, elite group of Christians. Why? Because our joy is found in Jesus, in his resurrection. You may be in a situation right now characterized by pain, by sorrow, maybe even weeping. And you may think God can't do anything with this. Think about a few days later, the disciples after Jesus has been crucified. God, he's, he's dead. His body was put on a cross. We can't even go see his body. It's been sealed in a tomb. He's dead. This passage kindly reminds us that to think God can't do anything in pain or sorrow or weeping, this passage reminds us that's not true. God used the most painful and sorrowful event in history to bring about everlasting life and joy to those who will believe and trust in Jesus. This doesn't mean you won't have sorrow or pain in this life. No, Jesus says this in, in verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble. You will face tribulation. But the point is that in any circumstances, you can have joy because your joy is not based on those circumstances. 
Jesus has overcome the world. My time here at at Hamilton, I've seen many of you exemplify this. You can't get around like you used to, yet you, you smile and talk about Jesus. You've lost a loved one, yet you continue to happily serve this church. You have a disease, yet you talk about how blessed you are. How do you still have such joy? I'm convinced that it's not because you're putting on a show or clenching your fist and just getting through it. I'm convinced that you believe in Jesus and the resurrection. And because God has taken care of your greatest fear, separation from God, judgment for your sin, these things, while still painful, while still sorrowful, they don't pale in comparison to that because your hope, your joy is not bound to circumstances. Your hope, your joy is found in Jesus. I'm grateful that many of you have taught me that, not by merely words, but by your very lives. As we think about the truth, we think about the effects of this truth, this transformation of sorrow to joy. What does it bring about to us? Someone or something may take your house, your money, your job, your status, your friends, your family, your health, but they can't take your joy, Christian. I will see you, Jesus says. What I am doing, what I have done, gives you a joy that can never be taken away. What if you could have a joy like that? A joy that doesn't depend on your circumstances. A joy that's not dependent on what others think of you. How about peace? What if you could have peace during a great loss? What if you could have peace even when life takes an unexpected turn? The effects of Jesus transforming sorrow into joy Give us this. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we can live a joyful life. And remember, the resurrection, one of the effects is that it brought clarity to the disciples, right? Now they know that Jesus is who he really said he is. Now they understand. It's making sense. The the cross and resurrection of Jesus brought clarity to them. They now can see. So how do you live this joyful life? I want to give you three things from this passage that I think will help you live joyfully as a Christian. I'll give you three things. One is something you hear often, and I'm glad that we hear often, but it's this. Number one, put the gospel on repeat. Put the gospel on repeat. You ever have that friend or maybe family member who really loves this specific song right now? What do you do if you really love a specific song? You play it over and over and over again. You put it on repeat. And what does that song do? Well, it fills your mind so that throughout the entire day, throughout the week, what what do you catch yourself singing? What do you catch yourself thinking about? That song, those lyrics. And what does it do to other people around you? Even if they don't like that song, it's ingrained in their brain. They can't get rid of it. Who gives you this joy that can never be taken away in this passage? It's Jesus. How by his life, death, and resurrection, the gospel. So if the source of this joy is the good news, the gospel of Jesus, wouldn't it make sense for this to be on repeat constantly? 
for this to be continually fresh in our mind, if we want to have joy. I think the great reformer Martin Luther helps us understand this. He said, the highest of all God's commands is this, that we ever hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He must daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness as a faithful God, he has grandly cared for us and that he gave his dear son for us. Do not let this mirror and throne of grace be torn away from before your eyes. From the moment you wake up to the moment you lay your head back down at night, you're in a war. You're, you're in a battle. A battle for your joy. A battle for your happiness. Where does your mind go when there's nothing else going on, when it's just idle? What are you daydreaming about? Meditate on the gospel. Let it shape your thoughts. Let it shape your dreams. You've been given access to the king. Repeat the gospel. Put the gospel on repeat. Number two, pray to your heavenly father. You look in this passage, you see it talks a lot about this this idea of coming to the Father, this access that we've been giving to the Father because of what Jesus has done. Jesus says, you can go directly to the Father in my name. You don't need me to ask for you. Go talk to your heavenly Father. Now, this doesn't mean Jesus doesn't have anything to do with this. In fact, Jesus has everything to do with this, right? After all, we pray in his name. We don't just say, in Jesus' name, amen, because it's tradition, No, we get that from Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name because Jesus told us to. But we talk to God our Father because we've been invited by Jesus. Look at verse 23. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Verse 26, in that day, You will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. God loves you, Christian. Look what this passage says. If you have put your trust in Jesus, if you love God's Son, God the Father loves you. You. This should blow your mind when you know anything about God and anything about yourself. Because we are actively in rebellion against God when we were born. We don't like God. We don't like the things of God. We love darkness rather than light. So how does God go from being our enemy to loving us? Well, it's because of Jesus, right? The cross. He bore our sin that we deserved. He took the wrath of God that we deserved and placed it upon himself. God loves you in Jesus. Now this reminds us God doesn't just love everybody the same. God loves you in Jesus. Notice who he is saying this to, the disciples. And what are the disciples about to do? They're about to desert Jesus at his most crucial moment. 
So he says, the Father loves you, knowing that just in a few hours, they're going to scatter. They're going to be afraid of Jesus. Peter will deny Jesus. What grace. Don't deny yourself access to the throne because you've had a bad day. You haven't performed as you ought. Jesus says, you're trusting in me. You love me. You come to the Father. And what does this do? It gives you joy. God does not become our genie or our butler. Rather, God loves you. God sent his son to suffer and die for you. Because Jesus got up from the grave, you will get up from the grave. What does this do to a person? What does this do to a community of people? It transforms us. So our priorities are not getting a a bigger house or a better job or making more money. Hamilton's uh, Hamilton's priorities are not becoming the the biggest church or being the, the most popular church. No, we now want what Jesus wants. Therefore, we ask for those things in Jesus' name directly to the Father, and he will answer. Ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. Have you been low on joy lately? How's your prayer life? Jesus says your prayer life is directly connected to your joy. Prayer gives you joy. Therefore, a lack of prayer is a lack of joy. Go, go on a walk. Pray while you walk. Pray on your commute. Pray with your spouse while you're going out the door. Do whatever you need to do to start praying. And third, sleep well. Sleep well. You may be thinking, diet, exercise, sleep well. That's not where I'm going. When there's a lot on your mind, when there are difficult circumstances you can't control, when you are facing trouble, it's typically not easy to fall asleep. It's not easy to rest when there is no peace. And Jesus doesn't promise to take away the trouble, right? But he does say that you can have peace in this world. Tim Keller helps us understand peace. He said, the English word is basically negative. It refers to the absence of trouble or hostility. But it means much more, he says. It means absolute wholeness, fullness, joyful, flourishing life. Christian, you belong to the one who has overcome the world. This is why you can have peace. It's not the absence of trouble, but there's something even greater than that. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 1 John chapter 5. So you can lay your head down at night. You can have peace because Jesus has overcome the world. The world tells you that you can either choose happiness or Jesus, right? You can either have joy or you can have faith. But Jesus says you want joy, you want true happiness, you want peace that doesn't depend on your circumstances. What does he do? He brings those things together. You want happiness and Jesus, they're not separate, they come together. He will just redefine what you think of happiness. You want joy or Jesus? He says you want true joy, you you come to me and you'll see what true joy is. The cross and resurrection of Jesus transform weeping into rejoicing. Live in the everlasting joy with which you have been given in Jesus. A guy by the name of Gary Habermas, you may recognize him if you've ever read anything about the resurrection. He's got a PhD in theology and philosophy. 
He debates atheists all about the resurrection. Then his wife, Debbie, got stomach cancer at 43 years old. They had four young children. And this is what he said during that time. I knew if God were to come to me, I would ask only one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed? And I think God would respond respond by asking gently, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? I'd say, come on, Lord, I've written seven, seven books on that topic. Of course he was raised from the dead. But I want to know about Debbie. I think he'd keep saying and coming back to me to the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? Until I got his point, the resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer to Debbie's death in 1995. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven. If Jesus was raised, Debbie was raised, and I will too someday, then I'll see them both. The resurrection of Jesus transforms sorrow into joy. Remind yourself of the gospel of Jesus. Pray to your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to remember what your resurrection has done for us in transforming sorrow into joy. May we live in this joy. In Jesus' name, amen.